1 John chapter 3 verses 11 to 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. G'day everyone, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC and it's great that you can join us. Today we're continuing our series in the book of 1 John. And the danger when we come to any familiar topic is to go into autopilot mode. Today's passage is high risk for just such a scenario. To discuss love for one another sounds like we're going back over our ABCs or delving into the intricacies of adding one plus one. But the truth is that we are completely dependent upon God's enabling to understand and live out his word. So will you join with me in asking for that enabling? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much that you're a God who loves us and has revealed yourself to us, that we may know you and be in fellowship with you. As we spend some time today uh, thinking again further about 1 John chapter 3, we pray that you would enable us by your spirit to understand what you're saying to us, and by the power of the same spirit, enable us to actually live it out. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. The proof is in the pudding. It's an idiom that gets used all the time, and yet I think the fuller phrase from which it originated actually makes a whole lot more sense. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now that claim may contradict these days' emphasis on food being plated up is what's important, but eating is certainly my preference for how to evaluate desserts. As far as I'm concerned, no matter how good a dessert looks, what matters is how it tastes. Anyway, I think you'll all agree that the point of the idiom is not actually about food. 
other idioms make the same point. Don't judge a book by its cover. All that glitters ain't gold. Clothes don't make the man. Beauty is only skin deep. The sheer variety of ways that we have to say this shows just how big an issue authenticity is. And it makes sense. Now, I promise this is not a confession, but just suppose for a moment that when I gave Christy her engagement ring, it wasn't actually a diamond, it was a great big cubic zirconia. Read, fake diamond. Now imagine that that ring gets damaged and without my knowledge, Christy takes it off to the jewelers to get it repaired so that she doesn't offend me by the damage she caused. Well, what looked first as a, a generous purchase and gift would be exposed as something very different. And not only is the object a fake, what does it say about the person who bought it and gave it? No matter what someone says or looks like on the outside, there is something far more important than words or looks. No matter what someone promises or even believes, it's how they act that really shows what they are really like. The proof is in the pudding. And way back in John's time, he said something very similar about love. Love isn't best expressed in a poem or in song. The proof of love is not in a gift of chocolates or even jewellery. When it comes to love, the proof is in the pudding. So what is authentic love? Well, in the passage that we've just read, verse 11 states that the, what the unchanging requirement is, we should love one another. Verses 12 to 15 examine the surprising reaction to authentic love. Verses 16 to 18 examine Jesus' demonstration of love and the implications that has for us. And finally, in verses 19 to 24, John applies this to our assurance and to our prayer. So again, the question, what is authentic love? As will be clear by now, John keeps circling back to topics that he has already introduced and discussed. Like a real diamond, he looks at different facets of the same thing to make related but slightly different points. John raised the inconsistency of people saying that they live in the light, but they hate their brother or sister way back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. His point there was that it's simply not possible to say one thing while doing another. They're mutually exclusive. If you live in the light, you will love your brother or sister. Hate for your sibling is proof that you live in the darkness. It doesn't matter what you say or what you believe, what you think about yourself. The proof is in the pudding. Last week, Rod helpfully showed us that how we live reveals which family we're a part of. And the passage finished off in verse 10 with the summary that anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother or sister. It's another example of the same logic. Those who don't do what is right are not God's children. If you are God's children, you will love your sibling. The proof is in the pudding. 
But what is the pudding? What is authentic love? In the first verse of today's passage, chapter 3, verse 11, the command alluded to back in chapter 2, verse 7, is made explicit. We should love one another. It's not exactly groundbreaking, is it? Neither John's first audience nor us today hear this and have a light bulb moment. Ah, oh, I finally get it. I'm supposed to love my fellow Christians all this time. I thought I was supposed to be hating them. I said, no, nobody is thinking that way. Our problem is not a lack of knowledge of what we should do. It's following through and actually loving. And at this point, John jumps immediately to the bad example of Cain. Verse 12, do not be like Cain. Cain, the elder son of Adam and Eve, is famous as the first ever child and the first ever murderer. Now, most of us can honestly say that we haven't murdered a brother or sister. So why does John lift up Cain as an example of what we shouldn't do? It seems pretty extreme, and it is. The, the starkness reveals the underlying attitude. John identifies what is not made explicit back in Genesis 4, the motivation that led to Cain's murder of Abel. Why did he do it? Well, because both brothers offered sacrifice to God. But Abel's offering was pleasing to God, which made Cain's offering look bad in comparison. And so Cain responded, not by improving his offering, but by getting rid of the one who had made his offering look bad. And it's a more common response than we might hope. Some of you will know the story of Tonya Harding, an American and world champion figure skater. Back in 1994, she was competing to gain selection to go to the Winter Olympics later that year. Tonya was a brilliant skater, the first ever female American to land a triple axle during competition. Her closest rival at the time was a skater by the name of Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy was able to skate in a way that made even Tonya look not so great. And so Tonya's ex-husband hired some thugs to take out the competition. Nancy was attacked the day before the competition, beaten with a baton. They intended to break her knee, but only succeeded in severely bruising her. Both women were selected to represent the US at the Olympics the following month. The by then recovered Nancy earned the silver medal and Tonya finished in eighth place. And again, we might say in response to such extreme behavior, well, I'd never hurt anybody. But John's main point here in verse 13 is that the world, world will. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. As Christians, like Abel, we love in order to please God, not to shed bad light on somebody else. And yet the behaviour of the world, those opposed to God, is exposed by Christian love. So impressive is authentic Christian love that it puts the love of non-Christians 
in a bad light. Now, if you're anything like me, John's words here might make you feel a little bit squirmish. One of the most frequent accusations made against Christians is that they're hypocrites, that they're holier than thou. And this seems to be a classic case in point. I know people who are not Christians, whose love is selfless, enduring, and patient, who care for those in need, who give sacrificially, who offer support to those in need. Think of the bushfires and the floods earlier this year. It certainly wasn't just Christians out there helping. Is John saying that all Christians are nice people, while non-Christians are horrible? Certainly not my experience, and I assume it's not yours either. But notice that verse 14 doesn't say that we should try harder to love one another. It doesn't say strive to outdo non-Christians to prove that you're better. The love that we have for one another is the proof that we have life. We've all watched those TV shows where someone takes the pulse or listens to the breathing to, to check if somebody is alive. And John here, like a spiritual doctor, says that our love is the evidence of life. Just as you can't decide to breathe or to not breathe, to, to have a pulse or not have a pulse, so Christians can't decide to love or to not love. Our love for one another is a sign that we have life. Can we hinder it? Can we make it grow and get better? Well, that's not the point that John's making here. Authentic love is something that results from the life that is in us. And some will attempt to get rid of that love in order that their lack of love won't be exposed for what it is. Their lack of life and love, verse 14, leads them to try to take life from those who do have it. And in yet another contrast, Jesus' example is set against Cain's example. Cain's hate led him to take another's life. Jesus' love led him to give his life for others. One takes to raise themselves up. The other gives in order to raise others up. And so Jesus defines for us what authentic love is. Have a look again at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Love is to act on behalf of the other, even at great cost to self. Not simply to feel something or to say something, not even to sing something. Why is there so much focus on the cross in Christianity? Because it most clearly demonstrates love. Love is to act on behalf of the other, even at great cost to oneself. And the unmistakable implication is made clear in the remainder of verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, laying down our lives here can't mean that we need to be crucified on behalf of another. Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that saves. But clearly, the sentiment of love songs must be more than a sentiment. Think about some love song lyrics. 
everything I do, I do it for you. I die for you. You're my everything. Now maybe the singers did mean what they sang. But the point of verse 18 is that words by themselves are cheap. There's no point saying that you love someone if it's not seen in your actions. And so verse 17 is a test that's easy to observe the outcome. If you see a fellow Christian who has material need and you have the capability to help them but don't, it raises the question of whether God's love is in us at all. The proof is in the pudding. And so we do have to ask, does this mean that every time a person puts out their hand to ask for money, we need to give it to them? What about every time a missionary presents their financial needs? Or if the church says that giving is down this month, how do we ensure that we are consistently giving to others, raising others up, rather than taking from others in order to raise ourselves up? Which I think means that this test is not merely, do I give money? The test is far more penetrating than that. It's actually asking, am I so invested in the lives of others that meeting their needs is my first thought? The thing that determines how I treat them. Do I have a heart like a mother's, willing to sacrifice themselves for the need of their child? Is the outcome for others, not myself, what decides what I think of what takes place? And so it is right to ask, is there money left in my bank account when I know of a need that my fellow Christian has? But I will also ask, do my words build up my Christian brothers and sisters? Do I give them my time? Do I take the time to listen to them really? Too often we judge our friends by what value they add to our lives. We evaluate politics by what it will provide for me. We gauge our time at church or at home group depending on how we go away feeling afterwards. It's all about me. Me and my needs are the standard against which everything is judged. To which John says, you're being Cain-like rather than Christ-like. And at one level, our response must be to recognise what's been termed selfism. I think it was Don Carson who coined the term. This is going beyond just being selfish. Our whole worldview is constructed around what lifts me up. And as we see in the Gospel, it results in questions like, well, who is my neighbour? rather than, can I help her too? It seeks to limit, restrict our responsibility, rather than overflowing with generosity. And we can't just write this off as Western individualism or economic prudence. We need to acknowledge it for what it is. It is sin. It is removing God from the centre and replacing him with me. And before we write off John as hopelessly unrealistic and an optimistic dreamer, recognise while the proof is in the pudding, this all depends upon God. If the test of authenticity is, 
do I always love my neighbour, then even if you may be fooled by what I do, my own heart knows that it simply isn't true. And yet, even when our hearts threaten to condemn us, verse 20, God knows better. We don't love because we know better than others what we're supposed to do. We don't love because we're more obedient than them. We have and we give authentic love to others simply because we've been given life. Verses 21 and 22 are not describing a special group of Christians that can be confident because they love and therefore their prayers will be answered. No. Our ability to ask God for anything rests on our living in Jesus and Jesus living in us. What is becoming clearer and clearer as we move our way through 1 John is the significance of Jesus. In the Gospels, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His famous answer, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And here, with unmistakable parallels, we are told in verse 23, and this is his, God's command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. These requirements are inseparable. To do the second part requires having the first. If we are going to love one another as God has always commanded, then the only way to do that is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believing in the name of Jesus is to love God. If you don't trust in Jesus as your substitute, then you do not love God. And you can't exhibit authentic love by merely deciding that this is what you must do. You won't grow in authentic love by, by trying harder. The key to authentic love is having Jesus living in us. And so hopefully this passage will make us stop and reflect on our behaviour. That grudge that I hold against the people that hurt me in the past, the indifference that I feel for Christians suffering in Turkey, my arrogant demands to be treated better by others. When held up in comparison to God's expectations, I see over and over what a terrible failure I am. I don't love. And the response at that point is key to this all. Will I redouble my efforts, trying harder to, to generate love from within me? Or will I repent of real sin, the sin that's there, and, and at that point believe again in Jesus? To believe is clearly not to merely give mental assent. It's not even to say particular words or participate in special religious ceremonies. To believe is to put all our eggs in one basket, to trust alone in Jesus, for his life to be displayed in ours. They're famous words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. They're words which flow so smoothly off the tongue. They sound so 
profound, so meaningful, so, so heartfelt. And yet their authenticity is tested at 1am when it's not your turn to go and settle that crying baby. They're tested when he doesn't take out the bins or she is sick and that prevents you going on that outing with your mates. The words are only as valuable as how accurately they describe you 20 years after the vows were made. We might call them our BFF, best friends forever. And while things are going well, it's accurate. But our claimed eternal devotion to our friends is tested when they don't invite us on that outing. When we don't see eye to eye, do we strike out at them? Or are we genuine in trying to understand where they're coming from? Are we, click, are we quick to listen and forgive? Or are we stubborn in holding a grudge? Are they friends that we really love? Or just friends we really love to have agree with us? Our love for our neighbour is not simply to put up with their noisy parties, to act on behalf of the other, even at great cost to self, may actually have far more to do with spending time on your knees before God praying for their salvation. Being willing to, to put up with their snide comments about your religiosity and keep on talking to them about Jesus. That's authentic love. Authentic love is profound evidence that Jesus is in us. Chapter 3 verse 12 says, don't be like Cain. Whereas chapter 3 verse 2 said, we shall be like Jesus. This is a foregone conclusion. We shall be like Jesus. Not because of us, but because of him. Saying we need to love one another might sound like John is preaching to the choir. But the choir will always need to hear this and keep on turning back to Jesus. In him alone is life and love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word that even things that are familiar to us, you have your people uh, go back over so that we would understand it and respond to it rightly. We are confronted by our lack of love. We know that it's there and we repent of it. We also recognise that it's only in Jesus living in us, his life being lived out through us, that we will genuinely be able to love. May we draw closer to him and may he be seen more and more clearly in us and through us. We pray this in his name. Amen.